This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on stress management, dialectics, and locus of control. And we'll see if we can do this without my glasses on. We're going to define stress and stress management and explore how understanding locus of control and using dialectics can help people reduce stress. We're also going to identify techniques to help people learn to use dialectics and embrace that balanced locus of control, which can be a little bit challenging. Now, today we're going to focus less on specific group activities and more on theory, but I will talk about some ways that I do this in my groups or with my clients. So one of the things I start out with is helping people realize that stress is not always a bad thing. Stress gets us up in the morning. If we didn't have a little bit of stress, we wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. So we need to get up. Stress is something that motivates us. But too much stress can be a bad thing. There are good stresses and there are bad stresses. And, you know, so I start out by asking people what stress is and, you know, give examples of things that are, are stressful. And, you know, the usual things come up, um, bad weather, car breaking down, yada, yada. But then I ask, what is some, what is some good stress? And people usually look at me like I'm crazy. They're like, good stress? So I explain to them that good stress makes you happier, healthier, or keeps you alive. Stress is anything that requires energy. So think about when you've gone on vacation. I know this is true for me when I go on vacation. I come back and I'm like, I need a vacation. I'm exhausted. You know, I expended a whole lot of energy. It was good stress, but it was stressful. Um, so it was something that required energy. We only have so much energy. And one way you can demonstrate this, and I've, I've shared this activity with you guys in other classes, is to have a pitcher of water, you know, a gallon pitcher of water, and to have a bucket, and, well, in this case, two buckets. You have your distress, and you have your good stress. And then every time you identify a source of stress, you put a half a cup of water in one of the buckets, whether it's good stress or distress. And then you can kind of get a visual for somebody about, you know, how their how stressful their day was and how much bad stress they had compared with, you know, good stress. We need things in our life that expend energy. And when we're not um, balancing that, 
then things start to break down, which is why, you know, every, pretty much every um, semester, at the end of the semester, I would wait to study. I was not a great student. I would wait to study and for my final exams until the week before. So I wouldn't get much sleep. So I would be staying up later. So I would put, be putting more stress on my body because I wasn't getting as, as much rest. Plus, I'm learning. And believe it or not, brain activity is one of the biggest users of blood glucose. So thinking actually does cause stress. I mean, it's good stress. You know, you're learning stuff, but it causes stress. Anyhow, during that period, I would exhaust a lot of energy on that stuff, and I would be focusing on it. So guess what? My body probably wasn't or definitely wasn't focusing as much energy on the immune system. It had to borrow from this account over here, the immune system, in order to give me all the energy I needed. And so inevitably, after finals were over, I would end up getting sick. You'd think I'd learn, but no, no, I didn't. So anyway, we want to look at balancing this stress and managing stress. Well, let's talk about distress for a second. Distress, as opposed to use stress, protects you from threats. You know, it causes fight, flight, depression, dysphoric emotions, if you will. So we want to think about sources of distress as not bad, but as the brain's way of going, hey, there might be a problem. You need to pay attention here. Something's got to change. Okay, that's fine. You know, when you're digesting food, your brain's not going, there's a problem. That's, that's good stress. It's helping you get the building blocks for the neurotransmitters and all that kind of stuff. But when you're sick and you can't breathe, you know, that's distress. You know, you're having to work harder to breathe and your immune system's having to work harder to fight off those bugabugas that you've got. So your body is exerting energy, extra energy, to fight off this infection. So it can be emotional, it can be physical. So managing stress means not exceeding that energy supply. We don't want to have to keep borrowing from all these other accounts, if you will. You don't want to have to borrow from your immune system. You don't want to have to borrow energy that you were going to spend doing something fun with your kids because you expended all of your energy getting stressed out over something at work and you just came home and you were like, you know what? No, mama ain't got it tonight. Um, so I encourage people to look at the ways they're using their energy because all stress is, is budgeting. You want to budget your energy and you don't want to exceed that energy supply. Unfortunately, the way we are wired, we're, we're wired for survival. And that, that's a cool thing because I, I like surviving. But our brain tends to hone in on the negative things. So generally for every distressful event, we need five positive events to balance it out. So again, I encourage people to look at, you know, you want that eustress bucket to be high up there. So you want good nutrition, digestion, rest, rest laughter, you know, whatever. Um, and, and help people see that they need to in incorporate eustress in their life. You know, just distress or removing distress, distressing, um, is not enough. They need to add good stress. They need, and that can be healthy eating. That can be getting enough sleep so their body can repair itself. That can be laughter. That can, you know, whatever it is. We want to bring positivity and health-related behaviors into their life in order to balance out the effects of other things. We also need to ensure that there is sufficient recovery time from each stressor. You know, after you eat, 
you don't immediately go swimming. Because if you do, guess what? A lot of times you get a cramp because your body, after you eat, wants to devote all that energy and all of its resources to digestion. And when you go swimming, it's going, well, digest food or float and don't drown. Which one should I do? So it, it's a problem. So we need to help people recognize that after you do things, you may need some downtime. And really intense things may require more recovery time. After you have a baby, most of the time, you're not just jumping up two hours later and going, okay, you know, let me make dinner. Um, that's just, you know. Not how it generally goes. You need a little bit of time to recover. Your body needs to recover. After you're sick, your body needs to recover. When somebody's been experiencing depression or high levels of anxiety, they need to give their body time to rest, recover, and rebalance all those neurotransmitters. So we need to try to help people see that if they're experiencing multiple stressors, even good stressors, you know, maybe they got a new baby at home, um, they need to recognize that they may not be as productive or things may not go as fast when this is happening because their energy is being spread out a little bit differently. I remember when um, my son was born, I was very foolhardy. He was my first child, and I thought that I would work on my dissertation while he slept. Yeah, he didn't sleep. So that was a problem. <laughs> So I had, you know, lots of these time demands, and I was trying to organize and, and deal with sleep deprivation on top of, you know, being a new mom, which was a whole big old learning curve for me anyway. And that was a lot of stress. I mean, it was good. He was a, you know, wonderful little kid, but it required a whole lot of energy. So I was kind of borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. Okay, so let's move on to stress management, dialectics, and locus of control. Locus of control, and, you know, going back to Psych 101, um, it refers to how much control a person feels they have over their destiny. And I try not to make this overly technical and theoretical for people. I just want people to see the, the meta concepts here. Um, and then we talk about dialectics, and we're going to go into each of these in detail in a minute. Dialectics encourages people to examine and incorporate all valid aspects of situations, recognizing that things can be controllable and uncontrollable. You know, most things in, in life, there are aspects, most situations, there are aspects that are controllable and there are also aspects that are uncontrollable. That things can be helpful and unhelpful at the same time. That something can be painful and upsetting or soothing, consoling, or for the best. Um, you know, this last one's kind of hard to wrap your head around sometimes. Giving you an example, I do a lot of animal rescue. And unfortunately, sometimes we get, especially feral animals or, you know, animals that have been on the street, animals that are infected with diseases that they just can't recover from. And the course of those diseases is pretty horrific. So destroying them humanely, um, is often for the best. It rips my heart out every time I have to make that decision. But I know that it's in the best interest of that animal as well as, you know, all the other animals out there. So does it hurt like heck? Yeah. But somewhere in the back of my head, I also know it's the right thing to do and it's for the best. Um, so there are, there are cho choices that we've got to make. Sometimes ending a relationship 
can be painful and upsetting, but deep down inside, the person knows this relationship is toxic to me. This hurts like heck, but it's for the best to split. Um, so before we get into that, we need to figure out what authenticity means. And authenticity means knowing what's important to you so you can balance extremes, you know, when you're looking at, you know, the the two extremes, you need to know what's important in order to know what to hone in on. You know, for me with the animal rescue, I know in my mind, living authentically, that doing what is best in the and, and most humane for that creature at that point in time is what needs to be done. So that helps me make more effective choices. And it helps me change in a way that gets me closer to my goals and in a way reduces distress. You know, yes. You can feel hurt, but if you can realize that there is another reason, you can feel out of control about some things, but if you can realize, okay, this part's out of my control, but this part, this part I got, this part's in my control, then it can help reduce anxiety and distress because you feel more empowered. So in order for people to be authentic, they've got to know themselves. They've got to know who they are. So I ask people and I give them sheets of paper. That they can that they can write on because you know not everybody wants to share this what is important to you physically you know your health and i give examples of your health your fitness your senses so for example um obviously health and fitness those are obvious ones but senses what what does that mean well is your sight important to you well if your sight's important to you then you probably ought to be wearing sunglasses when you go outside so you don't get cataracts um if your hearing's important to you then you might not want to be cranking up that music that loud i do that but hey um because you know that's not good for your hearing so all of these things help you you know when i don't crank my music up it's not as enjoyable so that's that dialectic there you know i could have it up really loud and just rock out or, you know, I could recognize that that's not good for my ears and hearing is important to me. So I need to balance those dialectics and find some level, you know, short of 10 that uh, works for me. But we talk about different things that are important to people and different capabilities. You know, is it important to you to be able to run a 5K when you're 65? For my grandfather, it was. You know, he was a runner his entire life. Um, so that was important to him. And it, it just drove him bonkers when he sprained his ankle one time and he couldn't get out there. Environmentally, what's important to you? And that means not only, you know, housing. Some people, it's important for them to have a 10,000 square foot house with, you know, marble floors and I, I don't know what else. And then other people, they are content as long as they have got a safe roof over their head. So what does your housing look like? Because that will really affect your stress in terms of what you feel is threatening and what you feel you need to devote energy to. And environmentally, what is important in terms of your surroundings? You know, and, and this can be crowding. This can be, you know, decor. There are a lot of things to consider in surroundings but for example if you know you need a quiet space to live you're not somebody who can live with the l train going by every 15 minutes well that's important for for the person to know because that's going to factor into their decision making about where to live and if they're 
not comfortable, if they're not able to relax where they live, then they're not going to be able to rest and rejuvenate. They're going to get worn down, and it's going to increase their distress. And interpersonally, what's important to you? And people and pets, I kind of put together, because for some of us, our four-legged babies are every bit as much of the family as our two-legged babies. Um, relationships and level of connection. You know, some people need to be intimately connected with several people. Other people need one best friend. Some people don't need that intense level of connection. They just need, you know, 40 people that they can, you know, call on in order to go do something on a Friday night. So what is important to you in relationships? Because that will determine, you know, some of these things that are um, how, how you would how people interpret some of these things. And then finally, asking people what their values are. And there are a lot of places you can go online and search for um, 50 values words or, you know, top 50 values, top 100 values. I have people go through and I have them mark, at, mark the top 20. And we do this pairing exercise and, you know, they go through those and I'm like, okay, you have your top 20? And they're like, yeah. And I said, okay. Now you got to cut that in half. And, okay. Anyway, we do that twice until they're down to five, their top five values. These are the things like loyalty, um, honesty, whatever, that are most important to them. These are the things they want to be known by, and these are the five values that are most often going to guide their decisions. These are the overarching values. Okay, so now they know what's important to them, what things are worth their effort, and how they envision wanting to live their life. Awesome. Okay. So we move on to locus of control. Because, again, you have to know that before you can start making stress management decisions. With an internal locus of control, people believe they control everything all the time. And they believe that hard work and personal abilities will lead to positive outcomes. They have a strong sense of personal responsibility for everything, you know, future thoughts. If they get a job or, or if they get a promotion or they don't get a promotion. If they get in a wreck on the way to work or they don't get a, on a, in a wreck on the way to work. Everything that happens, they feel some sort of personal responsibility for. And, you know, part, some of you out there may be going, well, yeah, we all have a certain amount of responsibility for stuff in our life. And you're getting ahead of me because the key phrase in there is a certain amount but I digress. So I ask clients, you know, after I talk about that, um, how can an internal locus of control, how can believing that you are responsible for everything that happens in your life, how can that decrease your distress? You know, obviously it's empowering. You feel motivated. You feel like you can, you feel efficacious, if you will. Um, and those are all great things. I want people to feel motivated and empowered and all that stuff. But how can having an internal locus of control increase your distress? And, you know, sometimes I need to prompt the group a little bit. What I want them to realize is that there are things out there that are out of their control. And it can lead to self-blame, like Christina points out, when there's no self-blame to be had. If a relationship ends... It could have been both of your parts. It could have been that person just had too many issues. It could have been whatever. And um, Carl also points out that internal locus of controls 
lead to unrealistic expectations. You know, if I think that everything I do, if I think it's my responsibility and enough hard work will get me, you know, a million dollars and to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, well, you know, there's a lot of stuff I can do. But, you know, number one, going back to living authentically, is that in line with my values? Is it in line with my values to take all my energy that I could be spending in a well-rounded life and focus it on this one thing? So there, it leads, I think, like Carl said, to a lack of self-care. Because sometimes if you think that you've got control over something um, and you just need to work a little bit harder or a little bit harder, you end up putting all of your energy into that one thing and everything else kind of goes to hell in a handbasket. So we want to encourage people to pay attention to the fact that, yes, motivation is important. It's important to recognize what parts you have control over. But if you think you can control everything, you're going to be sorely mistaken. Take the weather. We can't control the weather. And this is, can be kind of a fun activity. I start asking people, okay, tell me some of the things that you don't have control over. Um, and, and I remember, well, and they list things like the weather. I want them to bring up the concept that they don't have control over other people's thoughts and feelings because they don't. Um, they don't have control over everything that their boss does. You know, it may not be about them. They may have gotten passed over for the promotion because there was somebody else that was a better fit for it. Um, so encouraging them to look at alternate explanations for why something may have happened. My son, um, I guess he's going to be the highlight of my stories today. Uh, he was a micro preemie. He was born at 29 weeks. And, you know, my internal locus of control kicked in there. And I was like, what did I do? Why did I cause this child to come early? What in the world happened? Um, and in reality, that was one of those things I couldn't control. Um, at least modern medicine doesn't know how I could have controlled it because they don't know why he was that early. But it took me a while to accept that and embrace it and recognize, okay, you know what? That wasn't my fault. It was an unfortunate situation. However, you know, it was that part I had no control over. Um, so it's important to help people look at, be realistic about the things they have control over. And, and, and as y'all are pointing out, it's also important to recognize with internal locus of control, a lot of times people think they've got control over everything in their destiny and everybody else has control over everything in their destinies. And it puts extra, too much stress on those people too. If you expect that hard work and everything will get you everything you want in life and you instill that value in or expect that value out of everybody else, then that puts a whole lot of pressure on them because then if something goes wrong, if they fail in some way, which we all fail at things sometimes, then it's like, that's about me. That's not about, you know, not taking a look at any of those external factors. Okay, so moving on to external locus of control. External locus of control, people, if they're extreme, people feel like they have control over nothing. Fate, their higher power, God, whatever they want to call it, determines whatever happens. They're just along for the ride. It doesn't matter what they do. So people with extremely external locus of controls tend to be very passive. 
They're less likely to reach their full potential because they don't think there's any point. So there's no motivation. Um, and they can have emotional and cognitive deficits that is an ugly way of saying they may feel more depressed and anxious because they feel completely powerless and their problem solving abilities and ways of looking at things may not develop as much because they don't try to look at the situation and figure out, okay, well, how can I get around this obstacle? They're just like, oh, crap, there's an obstacle in my way. I guess I'm just going to sit here and wait for it to move. So that's the external locus of control. And, you know, I don't want to confuse that with learned helplessness, where people have tried to do things and no matter what they tried, it just didn't work out. And finally, they just kind of gave up. Um, that's a whole different issue. You know, they were trying. They had an internal locus of control, at, at least some, and they thought, you know, if I do the right thing, then then I'll succeed. And they just keep getting, um, keep keep not succeeding. So then it's, it feels hopeless again. Um, and they may start to embrace more of an external locus of control because they just have no idea what to do. They have a sense of that hopelessness and helplessness. Um, and, you know, it does, when people are, you know, one of the key features of depression is hopelessness and helplessness. So when people feel like that's just the way the world is, it is hard to get motivated and it's hard to feel happy. Um, and it's hard with people with external locus of controls. Guess what? They don't take credit for the good things. You know, the people with internal locus of control, they take too much credit. They take all the credit for the good things and they take all the credit for the bad things, even the stuff they didn't have anything to do with. People with external locus of control, they don't take credit for any of it. So that, that sense of pride and accomplishment and efficacy just doesn't develop. So again, we talk in, in group about how an external locus of con control can decrease stress. And some people say, well, then it takes the pressure off me. That's generally the main idea that comes out of that. And I'm like, it certainly does. But it also means that, you know, it can e increase distress because it may mean that you can't move towards those people, places, things, and, and experiences that are important in your life. And that feels horrible. Um, so, God, uh, the serenity prayer. Um, and it starts out, God grant me. And I want you to just kind of step back from that for a second and think good, orderly direction. It doesn't have to be a higher power. If you are living authentically, ah, there it is. See, I told you this slide would be important. Then you know where you're going and you know what's important to you. Where did it go? Uh, so if you know where you're going and you know what's important to you, that good orderly direction or your roadmap for life helps you accept the things you cannot change. You realize, okay, I've only got so much energy and I want to, these things are important to me and this is what I want to spend my energy on. So the things that I cannot change, I'm not just going to throw energy out the window at it. You know, that's, that's not going to help me get closer to my goals. So I am going to figure out some way, and that's a whole different class, um, to accept the things I cannot change. Um, because trying to change the unchangeable is a waste of precious energy. Uh, the courage to change the things I can. So, and EL and IL stand for external locus of control and internal locus of control. I want people to recognize the things they do have the power to change that will help them live authentically and stay with that good orderly direction, with that life path that they have. Because they can use their energy to move 
toward what's important to them. And then the wisdom to know the difference. Um, and, and that's where the dialectics come in. And it's really important to, um, before you start getting too far into this, you need to make sure that you've gone over and helped clients really think about what's important to them. Um, because something's important. You know, getting up in the morning was important. They came to counseling for some reason. Uh, they want to live. That's important. Um, is their health important to them? Is their dog important to them? What is important in their life? For If they envision a happy life, you know, whatever that is for them, what's in that life? What does it look like? Um, you can have them write a narrative of when I'm happy. Um, so it's important to make sure that they have this idea because you can't have good orderly direction without direction. You need to know where you're going and what is important to spend your energy on. Otherwise, you're just kind of throwing it out. Okay. So validation of self and others. This is another important thing, and it, it goes into locus of control and all this stuff and, and stress management. Validation doesn't mean agreeing because people feel how they feel. And somebody can be terribly upset about something, and I may disagree with them. But I can validate that, you know what, I hear you are really torn up about that right now. Um, so what do we validate? We validate, guess what, the valid. Um, so if somebody says, it is stupid to get up this upset over somebody leaving the toilet seat up. Well, that's pretty invalidating. If you're saying it to yourself or if you're saying it to somebody else, you're telling them that their feelings are stupid. And that's invalidating. Every invalid response makes sense in some way. So we want to go back and we want to look at, okay, why does leaving the toilet seat up make this person so angry? You know, and generally it's not about the toilet seat. It's either about the fact that they got their butt wet and now they're awake and they're not going to be able to go back to sleep, or it feels like a... Um, feels like it's something that's disrespectful because they had already had that discussion about please put the toilet seat down. Um, you know, whatever the case may be. But we want to validate that, okay, you're upset about that right now. You have every right to feel your feelings. We want to validate the facts, what actually happened. And we want to validate people's feelings, experiences, challenges, and beliefs. Because some people may believe that mental illness is a punishment from God. That's their belief, and that is very valid. You know, if that's what they believe, then I'm, who am I to tell them anything different? Um, so I want to validate that and then help them figure out how to have the happiest life and, and deal with their distress as best they can in that reality, if that's what they believe. So, you know, this is where we come into that whole cultural piece and making sure that, we're respecting people's beliefs about why things happen because certain cultures have more of an external locus of control than others. So we, we do want to be sensitive. So we validate by using empathy and mindfulness. Well, these things we do in, in counseling all the time. So, you know, these are kind of old, old hat to us. But for our clients, they may not know how to validate other people's feelings. They may not know how to say, I hear that, you know, you're feeling really awful right now. One of my um, professors in college explained the difference between sympathy, sympathy and empathy. And those of you who've been in this class before have heard this. 
Um, sympathy is if you've got somebody who's stuck in a well and it's 40 degrees outside, it's cold, they're wet, they're stuck, it's dark, and emergency crews still aren't there, and you happen along them, sympathy is looking over the well and going, hmm, really must suck to be down there. I'd hate to be you. Um, <laughs> empathy is when you strap on that repelling gear and you go down there with them. Now, you can still get out. You know, that's the difference between being consumed and having empathy. Um, you strap on that repelling gear and you go down there and you go, what? Go, you know what? Now I really, I understand why you're telling me that you're cold. I understand why you're telling me that you're afraid because it's daggum scary down here. I see that now. So walking a mile in their shoes, whatever you want to say. We also want to validate using mindfulness. We can validate ourselves, you know, validation of self and others. When we're feeling a certain way, we want to be mindful. And instead of pushing it away and going, you know, whatever, I just don't have time to feel right now, validating how we feel and going, okay, I feel angry or I feel happy. Um, and that can be really effective for that validation. Because sometimes, many times, People just need validation. They can solve the problem on their own very well, thank you very much. But they want, they need that connection of believing they've got somebody there that's cheering them on going, I get it. You know, this is really hard. Let's figure out how to fix it. We want to reflect feeling, you know, how, what their emotions are and the manifest and latent content. And I don't use those words when I do group because that's just garbledy gook to most people. But we want to reflect what's actually going on and then maybe some ideas about what else might be going on. Going back to that toilet seat. The manifest content is Sally went to the bathroom in the middle of the night and sat down and there was no toilet seat and plopped in the toilet. And it was, it woke her up and it was cold and, you know, then she got angry. Okay, that's the manifest content. The latent content is everything else that goes into her, her reaction, you know. Why is it she got upset, as upset as she did, about sitting down in, sitting down in the toilet water? Um, and it could be that she perceived it as a lack of respect. It could be that, you know, that's the fourth time that month that, that month that's happened, or, you know, I don't know. But looking at the, the latent content, the stuff that's not being said, the underlying motivations for that feeling or behavior. And again, acknowledging the valid. So dialectics. When we're working, you know, we've got that external locus of control and that internal locus of control. So there are certain things we can control, certain things we can't. When a situation happens, you know, one dialectic is accepting what you can and cannot control. Um, but dialectics can also help people address the situation to reduce distress and improve relationships or increase wisdom. And... Sometimes I use the yin and yang symbol, but I found this one online. Um, two people looking at the very same thing on the ground. This person swears it's a six, and this one swears it's a nine. Are both right? Well, yeah, pretty much. Um, so we do need to recognize that both things can be true from a certain point of view. And we need to balance those opposites and not just go, well, my way has to be the right way. Well, let's put my way aside for a second and go over here and see if I can see it from your perspective. We need to understand that truth evolves over time. 
and everything is interconnected. So, you know, what makes me happy today, you know, may not make me happy tomorrow. I don't know. So everything is changing and change is transactional. So if I'm doing something today that makes me happy, it's probably going to improve my environment, which will lead me to be in a better mood, which will lead me to continue to improve my environment, yada, yada. If I'm doing it the opposite way, if I'm in a bad mood and I'm focusing on the negative, it's probably going to compound my bad mood and increase how much I focus on the negative. So we do want to look at, at change. If we start adding positive in, it's a reciprocal effect. Recognize that there's always more than one way to see a situation. So, and we'll talk about ways to do this in a minute. And there's more than one way to solve a problem. My daughter taught me this when I was teaching her math um, because she didn't, solve a lot of problems the way I would have but she still came up with the right answer I mean she grouped things in her head I mean this was even like beginning edition and stuff she grouped things in her head differently than I did differently than I was taught but it didn't matter because she always came up with the right answer the way she was doing it so there's more than one way to solve a problem I can't tell her she's wrong when she gets the right answer dialectics occur along many dimensions there's a self and group dialectic so what I believe and what I want for me is hopefully in line, but sometimes it will compete with what I, as part of a family, want and need. So when we're thinking about vacations, you know, if I'm thinking about a vacation, I'm thinking cabin in the woods, no electronics, no internet, by myself, quiet, maybe bring my dog. Um, but the me that's part of a family thinks cabin in the woods with internet and you know all three dogs um, and the family around and you know other things so figuring out you know how to balance how to balance those things self and other individuals identity and reactions so my identity and my reaction versus my friends identity and reaction you know there's a dialectic there I need to embrace both because he or she may be well, they're right from their point of view and theoretically I'm right from my point of view so how can I embrace both how can we still be friends when we have different points of view we have the logical and the emotional mind you know sometimes things are very logical but the emotional mind goes I don't want to do that um, so we need to figure out how to balance it which is where that wise mind comes in if you want to think in DBT terminology um, empowered versus helpless. That's that internal versus external locus of control. You know, sometimes we're going to be empowered to do some things and not able to do other things. Impulsive or urgency versus radical acceptance. And this, you know, if you remember my B story, sometimes things happen and we feel like, oh my gosh, I've got to make that stop right now. B lands on your arm. I've got to make him go away right now or he's going to sting me. Or you can radically accept that, hey, there's a bee there. It is what it is. He's not stinging me. He's just there right now. Um, so balancing those. When something occurs, do you have to act immediately? Or, you know, is, can you radically accept? Or can you do a little bit of both? You can accept, okay, there's a bee on my arm, and this is not really comfortable for me. So let me think about what to do next. So it's not quite as impulsive, and it's not totally radically accepting it and then self-denial versus self-indulgence one of the things that 
I find that people tend to do is they go from extremes, whether it's um, exercising, you know, they have their, their New Year's resolutions and they're like, I am not going to be a couch potato anymore. I am going to go to the gym seven days a week and run a marathon and this, whoa, where did that come from? Or they decide to go on a diet and instead of just moderating their food choices or making smarter food choices, they decide they are just going to eat lettuce salad for the next or uh, cabbage soup or whatever it is for the next three months and that's all they're going to have. Well, okay, um, you know, I can see some problems with that from a nutritional perspective, but, you know, so that's self-denial versus self-indulgence of just eating anything and everything they see, you know, being on a seafood diet, so to speak. Um, and there's a midline in there. You know, you can moderate without overindulging, but at, without feeling completely denied in most things. Now, if we're talking about certain addictions, that's generally not the best idea, but um, there are other addictive behaviors like sex and eating that you can't abstain from. You know, um, maybe you can abstain from sex. You know, you could argue that one. But you can't abstain from eating forever. So you need to figure out that, that middle ground where you can be comfortable. So I have people choose an issue um, and describe, describe the extremes. And then identify what they're doing too much of versus too little of. So one uh, example I can give, I have a friend whose husband every spring goes out and he just, oh my gosh, he makes the most beautiful garden. And it's like this quarter acre garden. It's huge and it's beautiful and the peas are growing and everything. But by the time we get around to about June, he's gotten tired of it. He did, he did such a big garden that he was overwhelmed and exhausted and he's not out there weeding anymore and things get overgrown and then they end up getting in fights and everything but because he's just completely lost the energy so that's his extreme he's either all into the gardening and he's doing it 10 hours a day or 10 hours a week or he's not into it at all so identify what you're doing too much of versus too little of well too much you know he's making the garden too big you know, if he enjoys gardening, great. Pare it down a little bit. Instead of having 20 squash plants, have two. And, and see how that goes. And then you can always add a little bit more each year until you get to a size that feels comfortable. Um, too little of. Well, when he was doing all that gardening, then everything else was falling by the wayside. So he was starting to feel overwhelmed because he had to go to work and, you know, whatever else. So he was doing too little of his energy balancing. So he needed to step back and go, okay, in the big scheme of things, I like gardening. However, um, these other things are important in my life. Back to that authentic thing. So in order to be able to, you know, keep doing the weeding even in June and July and keep up with the garden, how do I need to apportion my energy? Um, so I start out with that one because that's a really benign example. And then we talk about other issues that people have, like relationships. Maybe they are in a conflictual relationship and they fight, quote unquote, all the time. Okay, well, so what are you doing too much of? Fighting. What are you doing too little of? If you're fighting, then you're not doing some of those positive connection building, communication type activities, most likely. So then we start looking at how they can start 
increasing some of the things they're doing too little of and decreasing some of the things they're doing too much of in order to, again, start, try to meet in the middle somewhere. Goals of dialectics are to reduce suffering and reactivity, to help people be able to stop and take a breath and go, okay, there's two sides to this, or let me find the silver lining, or whatever phrase they want to use. But it helps them step back, get out of that emotional mind, and say, okay, let's look at both sides of this. This increases happiness. You know, if you're not suffering and you're not nearly as reactive, you're more likely going to have more more energy and more happy it can increase wisdom and sometimes happiness and wisdom go hand in hand sometimes not so much but wisdom helps people know in their heart of hearts if you will okay i'm making this choice based on what's important to me based on where i want to go in life and this is the most logical choice so it's informing their decisions they become wiser about when i encounter the situation again i'll know what to do it increases a sense of personal validity because they're saying, yeah, my point of view can be right. Theirs can be too, but my point of view can be right. So people don't feel as adversarial like they're saying, well, I'm right and you're wrong or, or whatever, which leads to improved relationships because we're able to take each other's perspectives and step into their shoes and go, okay, I can see how you might come to that thought, understanding, feeling, whatever. I see that. Again, validating doesn't mean necessarily agreeing, but it means getting an understanding of where that person's coming from. So thinking dialectically. Um, an example, Tommy um, was, getting late, uh, was late getting home for the third time that week, and Sally was irate. So let's talk about thinking dialectically about that situation. First, view facts of the situation from both sides. Play devil's advocate. So Sally's irate. I'm going to want her to think about, okay, Tommy's point of view. You know, he may not understand why you're getting upset, and he may not understand why you want him to call if you're going to be late, and yada, yada. So I want her to come up with those sorts of things and go, okay, well, Tommy thought, felt, experienced this. Okay. And then I want Tommy to take Sally's position you know and really common activity we do in counseling have people juxtapose themselves and go okay what was sally's perspective to help people see dialectically okay i can see how that might have made you angry that i didn't call and you know dinner got burnt or whatever the case may be um so viewing the situation from both sides have the person ask themselves what am i missing so if they disagree with somebody or something happens that doesn't go the way they want, ask themselves, what am I missing here? Why, why is this happening? Letting go of extremes and catastrophizing. So either extreme, all helpless, all powerful, those are not helpful. And, and catastrophizing. When something bad happens, let's, you know, heaven forbid, um, you know, I, I feel really bad for those people who are, are dealing with Michael right now. But, you know, the panhandle got decimated, and it is a catastrophe down there. Now, those people could get really upset and dejected and just, I give up. Or, and what I'm hoping is going to happen, they will say, okay, we lost stuff, 
and this is really horrible, but we can bond together as a community. And that's generally what happens after a hurricane or a bad blizzard or something. Um, but if people stay in that catastrophic thinking, like this happened, it's the worst thing in the world, I'm never going to recover, this is never, then it's, that's not thinking dialectically, that's over here. So we want to say you're doing too much of the catastrophizing and not enough problem solving. Um, so that too much and not enough is all, always something to come back to. Encourage them to use metaphors and similes. This can help them think a little bit more dialectically. Um, and I always get those back messed up. I think similes are the ones that use the word like, you know. So I feel, um, I feel like I am um, drowning in a sea. And a metaphor would be knee-high to a grasshopper. Um, so using metaphors and similes can help people talk about their situations in very um, sensory ways. So, I mean, knee-high to a grasshopper, that brings an image to mind of somebody who's very, very small and maybe very, very fragile. So, you know, that gives me an idea about how somebody may feel in that situation. Encourage people to look for similarities in common ground. Um, so, you know, look, we'll go back to Tommy and Sally. Um, what are their similarities? Well, they're both ticked off right now. Another similarity, they both don't understand why the other one's ticked off right now. Um, what's their common ground? They love each other. What's their common ground? They want to stop arguing. Okay, so what needs to happen in order to make that happen and, and why? Um, Validate both sides and work towards change. So, you know, validating that Tommy did his best to get home as quickly as possible, uh, but he got stuck in traffic, and that happens. Validating that Sally was irate because dinner got burnt, and he knows that dinner's on the, on the table at five or, or whatever time. Say, okay, um, you know, you both have your points of view. Now, how can we work towards change? So maybe Sally doesn't start dinner until she gets the call from Tommy that he's on his way home or, or whatever. Um, encourage people to pay attention to their effect on others and practice letting go of blame. Um, blaming, and blaming's interesting because when we blame, we typically point our finger. But when we point our finger, we've got two fingers pointing out and three fingers pointing back at us. So that reminds us that there's generally enough blame to go around in situations if we're in that framework. But what good does blaming do? Blaming really doesn't do any good. It's your, it's your fault. Okay, well, that doesn't help anything. Let's look at the problem and how, does, how do we solve the problem. And then remember that all behaviors and feelings are caused. So why is this situation provoking this reaction? And that helps people think a little bit more dialectically, to, un, to step out of it and become more um, objective. Act activity that I do do with people, um, examples of dialectics, tough and gentle. So give me an example of somebody who, um, and I generally have um, index cards, and I shuffle them, and I pass them, pass the deck around, and I have people draw an index card. Uh, tough and gentle. Give me an example of someone or something that is both tough and gentle. Um, give me an example of being independent. And also needing help. You know, you can be independent. You can live by yourself or whatever. But sometimes you may need to call a friend. 
that's okay. It doesn't mean you're dependent. It means that none of us is perfect and none of us is designed to live in complete isolation. Problem solving and problem acceptance. Some problems just are. And, you know, some problems, there, there are things you can do to solve it. But then there are also parts of the problem or some problems, period, that you just have to accept. There's nothing you can do to solve that problem. Needs and wants. And, and this kind of focuses on, like, time management. And my son um, is in college now, and he's trying, bless his heart, he cannot just do the assignment that he's given. He's got to do the assignment and then three additional steps just to make it, quote, to his standards. And I keep pointing out to him that his other stuff that's important in his life, he doesn't have time to do because he's going above and beyond. And, you know, I validate and, and tell him how, how awesome it is that he's trying to, you know, go above and beyond. However, he needs to balance that with time management um, so he doesn't feel like he's completely stuck with only doing school and nothing else. So balancing those needs versus wants. Same thing in relationships. You know, we all have needs in, in our relationships, and we all have wants in our relationships. And we've got to balance those things. What do we need out of this relationship? And, um, you know, versus wh what do we want? And how can we find that middle ground? Because no relationship is perfect. No life is perfect. We're not going to get all of our needs met all the time. It's just the way it is. You know, sometimes you're going to be sleep deprived. Staying the same versus changing, you know, we want to balance those things. How can you both stay the same and change? Well, I'm the same person that I was in, in many respects 20 years ago, but I have learned a lot. So I've changed in my counseling approach. I've changed in the fact that I'm a parent now. So parts of me are the same. You know, I'm still crazy about animals and, you know, love gardening and all that kind of stuff. But part of me has also changed. Emotion regulation and emotion acceptance. You know, sometimes we need to control our emotions for, the for a second. We need to figure out how to tolerate the distress um, and accept that the emotions exist. You know, you don't want to fight with your emotions, but it's not always the best thing to just let her rip wherever you're at and whatever you're feeling. So balancing that. Trust and suspicion, taking and giving, wanting to be alone yet connected to others. Some people just don't feel comfortable in big groups. Some people get exhausted, as my daughter puts it, extroverting. Um, and, and, but she loves being connected, but she can only take so much connection. She needs that downtime. And that's okay. But it's important for people to understand that what they need and those dialectics and, you know, it does make sense that she wants both of those things. Observing and participating, sometimes it's better just to stand by and other times it's better to participate and you got to balance the two. Belonging in one group but not in another, you know, um, you know I'm a farmer. I'm a gardener. I love to be out in the yard. And I would not fit in well at all in a neighborhood with a really rigid HOA. I would be, you know, the sore thumb of the neighborhood because I'm always out there, you know, digging and tilling and plowing and whatever else. So, yes, I belong in my neighborhood. I fit perfectly in there. I would not belong in other neighborhoods. That doesn't mean that I'm a bad person. It just means, you know, we've got to find our niche.
Being a good person versus making hurtful choices. Again, you know, people can be really good people and they can make hurtful choices. Um, so understanding that both of those can, can coexist. Having valid reasons for your beliefs but still being wrong. Or being mad at somebody and still loving them. So those are all examples that we go over. And I want peop my, cl my clients to give examples of, you know, how they've seen or experienced those things. Um, challenging examples, you know, with children, seeing nice versus mean or good versus bad. Independence versus dependence. Um, parents divorce, those sorts of things. Um, body image is another place where we can use dialectics a lot because, you know, nobody has that perfect body that we see on Sports Illustrated. That's a whole lot of Photoshop. Um, but helping people accept their body image and accept themselves. So stress comes in many different forms. It can keep us going and get us motivated, but too much stress is exhausting, even the good time. Locus of control helps people realistically examine how much control they have over a situation. And dialectics help people deal with the stress by embracing and examining those opposing forces or opposing points in a situation and finding that middle ground. Are there any questions? Alrighty, everybody, have an amazing weekend. I don't know how it is um, uh, where, where y'all are. It is gorgeous here in Nashville area, and I hope you have a wonderful weekend. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.